We'll read. We're going to read the entire chapter, but just a reminder because we have had a couple of weeks where we weren't continuing our Genesis uh, study. Uh, in Genesis 15, we talked pretty extensively about the covenant that God made with Abraham. However, that covenant was was cut or sealed uh, or really promised uh, with God Himself. Abram was a passive participant in that in that covenant, and so we, we've covered that. If, if you weren't here for those sermons where we where we talked and went a little bit deeper into that idea of uh, of God kind of cutting or sealing that covenant with Himself, um, our sermons are recorded. <laughs> you can find them, so you can if you're interested. You can go back and listen to those. But just by way of reminder. That was kind of a, you could say that's a high point in this narrative of the life of, of Abraham. Um, we know that up to this point, we've covered the fact that Abram was justified by faith. We remember that Abram is remembered as a man of faith. And there are some high points in the life of Abram. But coming off of this covenant where God reiterates those promises to Abram, which is a high point, we're going to come right back into what we would consider one of the lower points with when we look at the actions of Abram and Sarah in Genesis 16. So always keep in mind, although Abram is remembered as a great man of faith and he's a, he's a hero of the faith and he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, he's still a sinner who was called by God and God used him to accomplish all that God had intended. He was justified through faith. And all of those things considered means that Abraham is no different than any of us. It is still the same. All of us and any human being that has ever existed post-fall can only be justified through faith. And all of us are simply the, re- the recipients of grace. God has called us into His marvelous light called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So do not forget that. Don't look at don't look at Abraham or any of the heroes of the faith and think, oh wow, I could never be like Abraham. I could never be like David. I could never be like you know fill in the blank with your favorite hero of the faith. Don't fall into that trap. Just human beings, sinful people, just like you and I, the recipients of grace, justified by faith. And so now we're going to look at a, at a passage, an event that's kind of going to put that in the forefront as we look at this. So we're going to read through the entirety of Genesis 16, and then we'll come through and kind of break it down a little bit. So starting in verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to you, or to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. 
May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So there's a few things to note in this. But simply put, what we have just read is that Abram and Sarah, and forgive me for the first half of that chapter I kept saying Sarah, their names have not been changed yet. Abram and Sarah, they have not received the promised son as of yet. And so in this case, Sarah is the one who kind of concocts a plan and says, Hey, I have Hagar. I'll give Hagar to you as a wife. And maybe through her, I will have children. And Abram knows full well that this is not what God has promised them. God has promised Abram that he will have a child of his own household. That it will be him and Sarah's child. But Abram listens to the voice of his wife. Sure enough, Hagar conceives. And then she looks with contempt upon Sarah. And of course... Sarah is greatly offended by this and upset. But then Abram defers and says, Hey, do as you wish with her. And she deals harshly with Hagar. And Hagar flees. But then, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar and is actually, or actually tells her that her, her offspring will be multiplied. And then we have this little segment where he says, Behold, you're pregnant shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so, there's this prophecy given, so to speak, and it is without question that from from this son, Ishmael, is going to come great conflict, great warrings, Great friction between him and all of the surrounding areas. And so one may wonder, well, well why would, how in the world does something like that fit into God's plan? How, how in the world does bringing a child into the world where it is sure, it is actually spoken by the angel of the Lord, that this is exactly what is going to happen? War. Friction. Battle will follow Ishmael and his offspring. 
how in the world does that fit into God's plan? We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But you may wonder, well, man, that's that kind of seems like a pretty, that's a real uh, tragic or real, uh, you know, I wouldn't like to hear that if I was a parent. Hey, you're going to have a child, but he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everybody else's hand against him. That doesn't seem like a very uplifting thing to receive about your coming child. So how does all of that fit into God's plan? But then we see that Hagar actually called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And Ishmael is born. And later in the book of Genesis, we know that um, the Ishmaelites, of course, come from him. He had 12 sons. And they were very much at war or at opposition with the people of God. And we'll look at that a little bit more closely as well. But let's go back to this encounter with Abram and Sarah. Earlier, when they went to Egypt, Abram told Sarah, Hey, tell them you're my sister and not my wife. And Abram kind of tried to take things into his own hands. Now it's Sarah. She's saying... Um, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now this is not a sermon on the roles of marriage. But I do want to state very plainly and briefly that women are not to lead the home. That is not the God-given design. If the women are leading and their voice is the loudest voice in the home, not loudest audibly, but loudest in the home, meaning they're leading the charge, they are leading the way, it is a detriment to the family. If the husbands are hearkening to the voice of their wives and simply doing as the wife says, it is a detriment to your family and your home. The saying, happy wife, happy life, cannot be substantiated from Scripture and ought not be followed by Christians. The statement ought to be, please God. That's it. The goal of a family is not to have a happy wife. And that equals a happy life. That is not Christian. It is not biblical. It ought to be abandoned. Okay? So, to back this up, the language that is used here, Abram listened to the voice of of Sarah. If you turn back to Genesis 3, this is actually part after the fall. This is part of what God says to Adam in verse 17. And to Adam he said, "Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you." So that is actually a direct reason that God gives to Adam This is why. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, again, I'm keeping these brief because this is not a sermon on the roles of marriage or anything like that. But we do have this here. Abram hearkened or Abram listened to the voice of his wife. And we see what transpired after that. But this does not support the idea that, oh, well, yeah, God just 
God just wants men to do everything and women are worthless and everything. No, it speaks to the fact that God is a God of order. If God has created man and he created them male and female, and if God has created marriage and if God has created family, then he alone has the authority to order marriage and family the way that he sees fit. And God has ordered that marriage be between one man and one woman. And that the leader of the home, the leader of that marriage, the head of house, be the man. If men do not lead their home, I'll simply repeat what I said earlier and then we'll move on. If men are not leading the home, and that means so much more than bringing home the bacon, making the money. If men are not leading the home spiritually, If men are not leading the home in all efforts to glorify God in all things, it is a detriment to the family. It does not matter how healthy or how happy that family looks on the outside. They are not well spiritually. If the female's voice, if the wife's voice is the loudest voice in the home and she is leading the charge, it is a detriment to the family. And it doesn't matter if you say, well, she's happy and the kids are happy, so we're good. No, you're not. Spiritually, you're not good. So Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Abram and Hagar conceive. But Abram knew. Abram knew that this was, this was not how the promise was said to come about. Abram knew this. But he listened to the voice of his wife. And even Ishmael is ultimately a part of God's plan. Remember the promise to Abram. You'll be the father of a great nation. But he also says... All of, the na- all of the nations of the earth through you will be blessed. Remember Paul says in Galatians that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And we ask the question, how in the world was the gospel preached to Abraham? But Paul hearkens back to the promise that was given him. In you shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So even, even the Ishmaelite nations ultimately through Jesus Christ can be reconciled to God. So Ishmael and and all of his descendants are ultimately a part of God's plan and a part of the promise that in him, in Abraham, shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed. God provides and protects Hagar and Ishmael. Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar and Hagar flees. And Hagar is the one who now has an encounter with the angel of the Lord. And she receives a promise, if you will. I will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. That's, we've already, Abraham has already been told that he'll be the father of a great nation. In him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that he will have, he will have a generation after him that is innumerable. But now Ishmael. There's, there's going to be so many descendants, so many offspring... Uh, from Ishmael that, that they too won't be able to be numbered. You are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And then of course we have this again as parents. This is not necessarily something that we would like to hear concerning our upcoming sons. He will be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so now I want us to consider briefly how and why 
Does all of this fit into God's ultimate plan? And with this, I want us to, y'all know I do this from time to time. We're going to kind of, we're going to kind of zoom out. Right now we're zoomed in. Abram, Sarai, Hagar, the birth of Ishmael. Or really the conception of Ishmael, not the birth yet. Now let's zoom out and let's look at all of the things that are going to happen after this. Israel's history, if you look at Israel's history in the Old Testament, or if you just pick up uh, a history of the Jewish nation, you will find that the Israelites were a people that were constantly at war with others, either constantly under attack or at wars, fightings with others. Their life was a life of, of turmoil, of hardship. And a lot of that was because they were surrounded by... They're enemies. And there was constant friction and war with God's people between them and their enemies. We know that there was many battles and wars that we read in the Old Testament that Israel won. Israel was, they were the victors. They, we say, there's no way they should have won that battle. There's no way they should have won that war. But it was because God is faithful and God miraculously provided victory we know that there was times that Israel, they were overtaken and led into captivity. But it was because God was judging them. God was punishing them. God was sanctifying or purifying them. And God always preserved a remnant. But here what we have, Ishmael and his descendants, without a doubt, they are going to become the enemies of the people of God. And yet God is preserving them. And God is, God is giving a promise that their offspring will be innumerable. But they're going to be a violent people. Also, just a note, Joseph, when he was sold into slavery, was sold to Ishmaelites. Esau, after, after Jacob and Esau, uh, after that account goes down and the birthright is given uh, to Jacob, Esau goes and marries an Ishmaelite woman. In Psalm 83, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to read briefly. But Psalm 83, verse 1, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. Moab and the Hagrites. And then it goes on. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. We cover the, the Ishmaelites. Ultimately, we know there was at one point that all of these enemies of God, they conspire together. We're going to wipe out Israel. We're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. We're going to wipe out the people of the Lord. And the Ishmaelites are part of that plan. And here we have the angel of the Lord telling Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And so what I want us to consider is all of the things that God does for His people. The glory of God that He reveals. 
the faithfulness of God that He reveals. The, the graciousness of God that He reveals. But also the severity of God that He reveals. The purposes of God that He reveals through, through the enemies of Israel. When you look at the history of Israel, you see time and time and time again. You would say, well, that was a moment where Israel, they should have been defeated. They should have been wiped out. Why weren't they defeated? Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. And because He accomplishes all that He intends. And that's the only explanation. But what did Israel learn from that? Each and every time that Israel was overwhelmed and they should have been, they should have been overtaken or they should have been defeated. What did they come out of those situations understanding? Wow, we are the people of God. God is faithful. He has shown Himself faithful once again. We did not deserve this. He is merciful. He is gracious. And they praised God. Then there were times where they were overtaken. They were overrun. And they may, they may have been tempted to say, well, why, why did this happen to us? And the response was always, you've turned aside to other gods. This is judgment. You have not worshipped your God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is a punishment. And God always said, I have preserved my remnant. I've preserved a remnant for me to this day. And so we see that God purifies His people. God sanctifies His people through trials and tribulations and hardship that God uses the enemies of His people to bring that purification, to bring that sanctification, and yes, to bring that judgment upon His people. But what does that show? That shows that God is sovereign, God has the authority, and God even uses the enemies of His people to accomplish His perfect purposes in His plan. That even in those moments, even when we look at our greatest enemies, even as we look at our greatest foes, God has the authority over them. And not only does He have the authority over them, God has a purpose and God has a plan for each and every one of our enemies and our foes. You say, yeah, I hope His plan is to judge them and to smite them and take them out. No, no, no. His plans are far greater than that. His plans are to sanctify us. His plans are to purify us. His plans are to break down our hardened hearts. To break down the idols in our hearts that honestly sometimes we might not even be fully aware of certain idols that we have in our life. But God uses hardships and trials. God may even use enemies and foes to kind of bring out the fact that oh there's an, there's an idol there. There's a, there's a sin problem there. I need to repent of that and turn away from it. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. But then it even goes a step further. We started in Romans 5. I don't want to make a, a loose connection there. Because even the Ishmaelites, through Jesus Christ, even the greatest enemies of God become His beloved children through the blood of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, even the Ishmaelites, even any of the Ites, as we've gone through Genesis, we've read a few lists that most of the names, they end in Ites. But we know that ultimately, in the Old Testament, this was one of the big mysteries. Paul makes reference of that in, in Ephesians, that one of the mysteries that was revealed was that, 
And I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus didn't just come for, for ethnic Israel. Jesus came for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who call upon the name of the Lord. Even Ishmaelites. Even those who, even those who are at one time far off, far away from God, are brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a hope of salvation. There is a gospel to be proclaimed, the good news of Jesus Christ. And through that good news of Jesus Christ, even enemies are made friends of God. And see, that's, to some people, that's almost a scandal of the gospel, an offense of the gospel. You think, you think of your greatest enemy or your, your greatest foe that you have in your life right now. Or think about the person who has hurt you the most in your life right now. And your hope and your prayer should not simply be that that person stops hurting you or that that person asks for forgiveness one day. Your hope and your prayer should be that I want that enemy, I want that foe to become my brother or sister in Christ. It shouldn't just be, well, well I, hope, I hope we figure stuff out one day. I don't want that person to be my enemy. I don't, I don't want that person to be my foe. I don't want these problems in our relationship. I want to get it all figured out. It goes even further than that. And God can be glorified in that, in that friction, in that hardship in the relationship. God can be glorified in, uh, in your struggles and in your trials and tribulations through your enemies, through your foes. And it could be that God will be glorified in not just a reconciliation in an earthly sense, but a reconciliation of the fact that enemies not only become the children of God, but that means enemies become brothers and sisters all a part of the body of Christ. But back to this real quick, now zooming back in. It is made plain God has a plan for Hagar and for Ishmael. By the way, just a brief note. I'm not going to dive too deep into this right now. When we see the angel of the Lord here, there's good reason to believe that this would be an Old Testament um, manifestation of Jesus Christ to Hagar. And notice that he says, I will surely multiply. So the angel of the Lord says, I will surely multiply. Okay, so just note that briefly. We'll, we'll visit that a lot more deeply in later sermons. But the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. No, no regular normal angel necessarily has the authority to multiply offspring and all of those things. Doesn't have the authority over life and conception and things such as that nature. <clears throat> what does this mean for us today? What can we learn immediately? How can we apply this? What kind of practical applications can we take from this today? Well, first and foremost, we start where we began. And again, this is not a sermon on marriage and the roles of a marriage. But do take note. In the garden, Adam listened to the voice of Eve and followed her. Problems happened. The fall occurred. Here we have another example that Sarah came up. Sorry, Sarah. Their names have not been changed yet. Sarah came up, concocted a plan. Abram listened, hearkened to the voice of his wife. And this was a misstep. 
This was a misstep in the life of Abram and Sarah. This was not a step of faith. This was not a step of we're trusting in God and that's why we're doing this. No, this was a step of, hey, we've got a plan. We're going to do our plan. So first, just by way of reminder, all of the men here today, ask yourself and be honest. You don't have to answer out loud. I'm just saying be honest when you're thinking about this. Are you even are you even seeking to lead your household? Are you sincerely leading your family towards glorifying God in all things? Scripture is clear. These are not the only two accounts that we could look at in Scripture. But we have to. We looked at Adam and Eve and we've looked at this one. Men are to lead the home. And again, that means more than making the money and putting food on the table and working hard. Everything That's great. Do that. But if you are not leading your family spiritually, you are not honoring God. It really is as simple as that. Women... Do you desire for your husband to lead? Or do you have it in your heart that you want to lead? That you want your husband to do the things that you want him to do? Or do you have a heart that says, I want my husband to lead and to glorify God. And I want to submit and follow my husband because that glorifies God. Take these things into consideration. Secondly, even though this was a misstep from Abram and Sarai, praise be to God that ultimately in God's immensity, in God's goodness, in God's sovereignty, even our missteps are ultimately a part of His plan to sanctify us and to shape us into the image of Christ. Now, do not take that, please, Do not take that and say, oh, even our missteps are a part of His plan. I can be kind of frivolous with my decisions because ultimately it's all a part of God's plan anyway. So I can just start kind of doing whatever I want. No, God forbid. Do we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. Do we act foolishly just because we know that ultimately God is sovereign? No. We take these things and we say, Okay, God is sovereign. He has saved me. He has given me the mind of Christ. I am to make wise, biblical, God-honoring decisions. Are there some decisions that are tough? And we say, well, I could do this and I could do that. And I think both of these would fall into the category of, of honoring God. And to my limited human understanding, I think both of these are good options. Okay, this is where trusting and resting in the sovereignty of God comes into play. And we say, okay, both of these... Seem like good options. I've got the freedom to choose one or the other. Now, ultimately, in my human limited knowledge, I have come to the conclusion that two, maybe three options could possibly be good for me and my family. If I choose the wrong one, is God going to punish me and, 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 and punish my entire family? Hmm? If you've got two or three options that you are fully convinced in your limited capacity are good options, choose one. And then rest 
in the sovereignty of God, that He's working all things together for good, and He will sanctify, and He will purify, and He will glorify Himself even through your missteps. It's not a license to be frivolous, but it is a comfort in those moments where we do have really hard decisions to make. It is a great comfort, a beautiful comfort to know in those moments that, okay, I'm making the best decision that I can possibly make in my human understanding right now. And I have comfort in knowing that even, even, if, even if this is the wrong decision, even if this isn't the best decision, God is still good and He's still sovereign and He's still going to use this for His glory. Amen. This decision that Abraham and Sarah made wasn't really a good decision. But even in this, God had a plan. Now hear me, He did not make a plan out of it. He had a plan the whole time. Okay? He had a plan. And He reveals that to Hagar. And again, that plan, Ishmael is not going to be this peaceful, pacifist type person. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. That's not really something too kind that you can say about people, okay? He's going to be at war with all of his surrounding people and they're going to be at war with him. And again, we ask the question, why? Like, why would God include that in part of his plan? And that's when we zoomed out. Think about all of the good. And when I say good, the spiritual good. All of the good that God revealed about himself in the trials and tribulations of the people of Israel which included their enemies surrounding them, attacking them, being at war with them. And then think about all of the times, time and time and time and time again, that God delivered His people from their enemies. What can we learn from that? There is not an enemy on this earth that can overtake us. Before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, He prayed to the Father, And he said, Father, I'm not asking that you take these people out of the world. Keep them from the evil one. Folks, if Christ has saved us, purchased us with His own blood, and He's interceding for us right now at the right hand of the Father, and we know that His petition to the Father was to keep them from the evil one, then forget about all your earthly enemies, foes, and problems. and try. Not even Satan himself can overtake you or overcome you. Why? Because we've been purchased. We've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. The Father Himself is keeping us from the evil one. As Christ said, no one can snatch them from My hand. The Father, who is greater than I, none can snatch them from His hand. Therefore, therefore, because our, all of our enemies, all of our earthly foes, since they have already been ultimately defeated, that is why when we read the promise, God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, that's why we can believe it. All of our enemies have already been defeated. Therefore, God uses even our enemies, even our foes, even our trials, even our tribulations, even our sufferings, even our pain. He uses that for our good as He is shaping us into the image of Christ. 
And ultimately, to close out, I just want to repeat this point plainly. I do believe that Ishmael, the birth of Ishmael, and the fact that all of his people afterwards were the enemies of God and there was great turmoil and conflict. We have a glimpse here because we know the promise to Abraham. Because we know the gospel was preached to Abram. In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. When we read of this account of Hagar and Ishmael, it automatically gives us a kind of foreshadowing that, hey, even the Ishmaelites have a hope for salvation. Even the greatest enemies of God have a hope for, a hope for salvation. That's amazing. That's incredible. When, when God told Abram, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, he, he meant even the Ishmaelites. Even them. And that's going to result in, we go back to this, that's going to result in, like we read in Revelation, an innumerable multitude, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, worshiping God for salvation. That's going to be the final result of all of this. So since we are in this study of the book of Genesis, please don't forget that as it is connected with everything else. In Genesis 3, God promised that the the head of the serpent would be crushed. Everything from Genesis to Revelation screams and shouts the praises of the Lamb. Jesus doesn't just show up on the scene in the New Testament like, oh, where did He come from? When God told Abram, and you shall the nations of the earth be blessed, you will have a son. Paul tells us plainly in the New Testament, it was, that, wasn't just, that wasn't Isaac, it, Christ. Of what lineage, of what line did Christ come from? Abram. How is it said that in Abram all the nations of the earth, or through Abram all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Because Jesus Christ, the Savior, came from that line. This has been God's plan since before the foundations of the earth. It has always been the plan of the Father to give Christ preeminence in all things. That all things both in heaven and on earth would be united in Christ. So as we read, as we read chapter 16, as we read chapter 15, when we read about these promises that are given from God to His people, when we read the promises that are given directly to Abraham, ultimately, as we read in the New Testament, all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Please don't lose that. All the, don't think, oh, well, Genesis 1 through 3, that's like creation in the fall. And then we have like the flood. And then we have the Tower of Babel. And then we have Abram. And please understand how all those things are so intri- intricately connected. Genesis 1 through 3, it is the creation in the fall. And God gives a promise. And the rest of Scripture is the unfolding of that promise. That the serpent's going to be crushed. And just as God made a sacrifice 
and covered the shame of Adam and Eve in the garden, a sacrifice has been made and a covering has been given through Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's all throughout the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It all points to Christ. So I hope that these few comments and thoughts from Genesis 16 have been helpful, that they've been encouraging. Do keep in mind again, this was a misstep with Abram and Sarah. And I mentioned that again, not, oh yeah, it's a misstep. I mentioned that for our step, for our sakes. We take lots of missteps. We fall. We stumble. How is Abram and Sarah, how are they remembered? Sarah is remembered as a great wife in the New Testament. She's, she's mentioned as, as a great wife, one who honored her husband. Abram is remembered as a great man of faith. How is that encouragement to us? We see they fell. They stumbled. They struggled. But they were the recipients of grace, justified by faith, and God used them to accomplish His purposes. That's us. Our aim in life should simply be to faithfully obey God. And we rest in the fact that even in our misstep, even in our missteps, even in our struggles, He's still working all things together for good, and He's still going to accomplish our purposes, His purposes. For our good. And ultimately, our lives, everything that we say and that we do as we live our life that God has blessed us with, we should strive with everything within us to point our family, to point others to Christ and to glorify God in all things. Um, Next Sunday and the Sunday after that, we're not going to be in Genesis. Uh, Easter's coming up, so we're going to take a couple of Sundays to kind of focus on um, some more um, detailed studies on the person of Christ, uh, and then we'll pick up in Genesis after that. But thank you guys, as always, for listening so well this morning. Again, I pray it has been an encouragement. Um, Pray that our hearts have been challenged and encouraged and blessed. Pray that we've been called to ponder or to think on some things in our own lives and pray that there's even been some conviction on things and we praise God for his work through the study of his word we'll close in a word of prayer